Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to begin our time this morning by reading Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Galatians 2, 11 to 21. The Apostle Paul says this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God give us understanding this morning. Well, today is Reformation Sunday, the day where we remember Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October, 1517. In previous generations, others had attacked the practices of the Catholic Church, but Luther attacked the theology, and he got right to the heart of the matter as he rediscovered the heart of the gospel, that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Luther said that justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If you get this wrong, if you do not affirm that sinners are made right before God by faith alone, then everything collapses around you. Now, Luther did not attack the teaching of the Catholic Church because it denied justification by faith, but because it denied justification by faith alone. That little word made all the difference. How is a sinner made right with holy God? Does a sinner need to contribute to their being justified before God? Or was it all of God? The Reformers were emphatic that the Bible said justification was by faith alone. The Catholic Church responded in the middle of the 16th century at the Council of Trent. 
And let me just quote two statements from the sixth session of that council, which dealt with justification. Canon 9 says this, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. And then in Canon 24, it says this, If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Now, more could be quoted, but the point is clear. While Rome taught that justification was by faith, it was emphatic that it was not merely by faith alone. Well, what I want to do this morning is to show that this should be of concern to us today. Not merely because it was of concern to the reformers in the 16th century, but because it was of concern to the early church and it was of concern and is of concern to God in whose word we read it. Does it matter whether justification is by faith alone? Does it matter whether we are made right before God by his work or by the contribution of our own works? Let me say firstly that to suggest sinners play a part in their being justified before God is a serious compromise of the gospel. A compromise that means we are no longer talking about the gospel revealed in God's word. And this is made very clear throughout the book of Galatians. Now, the occasion for the writing of this letter was a serious compromise. Unlike the Apostle Paul's other letters, there is no thanksgiving for his recipients in the opening paragraph because the reason for writing is not a pleasant one. Uh, With some introductory comments about who he is and the nature of the gospel, he then lets fire from chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. So turn with me to that. John at Galatians 1 from verse 6. Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is a serious compromise going on in that the Galatians had been infiltrated by some false teachers advocating that faith in Christ was good, but not good enough. There needed to be adherence to certain Jewish identity markers in order to be fully saved. These teachers were teaching justification by faith plus works. And the Galatians were buying into this poisonous doctrine. 
Paul's response is heated because he understands exactly what is at stake. The salvation of their very souls. Now, there is debate about who Paul is writing to. But for the sake of time this morning, let me simplify things by saying that the most common perspective taken by evangelical scholars is that Paul was writing to the people who had come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts chapter 13. So turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 13 and we'll get ourselves some bearings In Acts chapter 13, we read this in verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, Antioch was in Syria, which is north of Jerusalem, up close to where the Mediterranean Sea reaches its northeastern corner. And it was really the first main area where uh, the Christians began consistently proclaiming the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And it was from the church there that Paul and Barnabas were sent off on their first mission. Throughout chapters 13 and 14 of Acts, Luke recounts the details of Paul and Barnabas' journey, which was mostly through the southern section of what is today known as Turkey, uh, but in the first century was Galatia. Once they reached a certain point in their journey, they returned through most of the cities that they'd preached. They established elders in every church, which we read about in Acts 14, verse 23. And then in chapter 14, verses 27 to 28, the last two verses of that chapter, tells us what happened when they got home to Antioch once more. Verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. But then look what happened in chapter 15. Verses 1 to 2. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this is when Paul and Barnabas headed up to Jerusalem for the first church council. And it was there officially affirmed, as we read throughout chapter 15, affirmed that the Gentiles did not have to abide by Jewish law in order to be saved. In fact, it was clear that no one, neither Jew nor Gentile, had to abide by the Jewish law to be saved. In verse 11, Peter declared at the council, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Grace alone. 
through faith alone in Christ alone. So where does that leave us in understanding the context of the Galatian letter? Well, when Paul and Barnabas got back to Antioch from their first missionary journey, they received word that the people whom they had just recently left were succumbing to false teaching. Around the same time as receiving this news from Galatia, Paul encounters further issues in Antioch, uh, where even some of the respected Christian leaders are beginning to compromise out of fear of the false teachers. So Paul confronted that issue in Antioch, then he penned the letter to Galatia, and then he headed up to Jerusalem to participate in that historic first council. It is that confrontation in Antioch that we want to focus on today in Galatians chapter 2 because Paul uses these events to teach the Galatians about the importance of justification by faith alone. You see during the time that Paul and Barnabas were away or shortly after their return Cephas better known as the apostle Peter uh, had come to Antioch Paul doesn't recount why, uh, but no doubt Peter was interested in seeing how God was continuing to grow the church. As Peter, he'd already had an amazing experience of seeing the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentile believers in the home of Cornelius, which is recorded in Acts 10. And you, you remember that? Peter, he was given that incredible vision as he slept, where all these Uh, ceremonially unclean animals descended before his eyes and God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter, having never eaten anything deemed unclean before, he had a tremendous trouble accepting the Lord's command. What happened when he woke up? Some, Some men arrived from the Gentile centurion, Cornelius, asking Peter to come and see him. Why? Because God had appeared to Cornelius as well. And when Peter was asked to preach the gospel to them, he reluctantly did so. And what happened next? The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and they displayed the same signs as the believers did on Pentecost, demonstrating without doubt to Peter that these Gentiles were saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, just as he had been. Now that wasn't the end of Peter's experience either. After seeing Cornelius, he went back to Jerusalem and he was interrogated for his actions because the rest of the Jewish Christians also had a hard time accepting the fact that God was bringing Gentiles into his kingdom and and not expecting them to, to follow the Jewish customs. But Peter defended what he had seen God do and we read in Acts 11, 18, when they had heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. That leads to life. So, this same Peter, a couple of years later, he's found his way to Antioch and is enjoying fellowship with the church, a church of both Jew and Gentile believers. Now, there's not full consensus among scholars as to exactly what happened in Antioch, but I suggest that the the best way to understand what happened is that men came from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to inform Peter that tensions were growing in Jerusalem. The unbelieving Jews had got wind that 
the believing Jews in Antioch were abandoning the law of Moses and it was leading to increased persecution. So out of fear, either for himself or more particularly for the other Jewish believers, in order to protect them from persecution, Peter started to withdraw from being seen to eat with the Gentile believers. Let things just cool down. Now, Peter hadn't changed his theology, but he was acting hypocritically. And this hypocrisy was leading others astray as well, including Barnabas, the guy that had gone with Paul and preached up a storm throughout Galatia. And moreover, it was a double standard because Peter had been foregoing much of the Jewish customs for a long time by this point. And so Paul was forced to confront Peter. And because Peter's actions had been public, the rebuke was public as well. And some might think that Paul was going overboard and that he should have been more understanding of Peter's motivation. But as we read in verse 14, Paul says, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Much is at stake here. The beginning of Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounts an earlier visit to Jerusalem that he undertook with Barnabas and Titus. You can turn back there now if you haven't already. Galatians 2. False brothers were trying to force Titus, a Gentile, to be circumcised. But then Paul states in chapter 2 verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Despite the pressure, they didn't yield. Now, during that visit, Paul met with James and Peter and John, the pillars of the Jerusalem church, and they all affirmed they were all preaching the same gospel. And so Peter's actions in abstaining from eating with the Gentiles, unless they followed certain dietary requirements, is the equivalent of if Paul succumbed to the pressures of the false brothers and had Titus circumcised. It would amount to requiring justification by faith plus works. Now Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter's fear was a serious compromise. In seeking to avoid the judgment of unbelievers, he was placing himself and others under the judgment of God because he was giving the impression that works of the law must be added to faith in Christ to make us right before God. That is a false doctrine. And by sharing this encounter, Paul was teaching the Galatians that there can be no compromises on this matter. There is only one gospel And that gospel rests solely on the grace of God that enables faith in Christ. We cannot allow fear to determine the content of the gospel. The truth of the gospel has been revealed by God himself. Peter heard it from the lips of Christ when he walked the earth. Paul heard from the lips of Christ when he appeared to Paul. Galatians 1.12, Paul states, I did not receive it, that is, I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
We must stand firm on the truth that God has revealed in his written word. To compromise on that is to lead ourselves and others away from Christ and away from salvation. From Peter's serious compromise, we hear Paul's straightforward clarification in verses 15 to 16. And he begins, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Both Paul and Peter were Jews by nature. They were born Jewish, born into the covenant people of the nation of Israel. Paul is in no way denying that he and Peter are also sinners by nature, but he's pointing out that by virtue of being born into the nation of Israel, they had certain blessings. In Romans 9, Paul lists some of these blessings when speaking about his fellow Israelites. In chapter 9, verse 4, he says, To the Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. The Gentiles did not have these blessings. They did not have the law, and so they neither knew God's law nor kept God's law, especially in the realm of dietary requirements. But Paul's point was not to highlight that the Jews were more righteous. His point was that unlike the Gentiles, the Jews knew what righteousness was, but that this fact did not mean they could attain a righteous standing before God. Why? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Both Paul and Peter had been, by God's grace, enabled to understand that the law of Moses showed the righteousness of God, but that had no ability to enable that righteousness within those who read it. So for the Jews... Having the law made them culpable of sin because it showed just how holy God was and it showed just how far short of the glory of God they had fallen. And there was nothing wrong with the law. It was holy, righteous, good. But the sinful nature of humanity means that every single human being is both unable and unwilling to follow God's commands to the letter. The law of Moses then acts to drive a person to their need for a saviour. It acts to show us that sinners cannot be made right before God by performing the works of the law, that is the whole law of Moses, but only through faith in Jesus Christ, only through trusting in the perfect work of the saviour. And once again, it is only by God's grace that a sinner is enabled to know this truth. Because without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in a sinner's life, they are only rebels against God. Now Paul can include Peter here saying, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. We know this, Peter, because God's grace has touched our lives and enabled us to know the truth. And what was the result of knowing? So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Paul says to Peter, we know that faith alone justifies. And so what do we do with that knowledge? We acted on it, didn't we? We laid down any trust in our own abilities and trusted solely in Christ's achievement. 
And then could Paul be any clearer as he rounds out the statement? Why should we not trust in our inabilities to perform the works of the law? Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now that's not hard to understand, is it? There's no ambiguity there. Now in the context of Paul's discussion with Peter, the point is this. If justification by faith alone and not by works of the... Sorry, if justification is by faith alone and not by works of the law, why should Peter be insisting on the Gentile believers performing works of the law before he will eat a meal with them? In the context of Paul's message to the Galatians, the point is this. Justification is by faith alone. So do not listen to anyone who tells you otherwise. Do not listen to anyone who says that to be made right before God, you must trust in Christ and perform works of the law. Now this is extremely important because there is a strong tendency within sinners, even redeemed sinners who, while rescued from slavery to sin and nonetheless still tempted by sin, and the tendency is to usurp God's authority. The tendency is to bring God down and to bring us up. To diminish the view of our own sinful nature and think that we're not as bad as what we actually are. To think, surely we can do something to assist in making ourselves right before God. Because we're deep down, we are really, we are good people, really. But the statement here in Galatians 2.16 is without ambiguity. It is only through faith in Christ Jesus that sinners are justified before God. That is it. That is the only way. So if you are someone who thinks you can get into heaven by doing good works, then you are horrendously mistaken. It is only the perfect work of Christ that justifies. And so I call on you this day, renounce any trust in your own works and submit yourself entirely to the Lordship of Jesus. Now, Paul has given a straightforward clarification, but he is not done yet. In the final verses of this chapter, he outlines a severe consequence for denying justification by faith alone. I've grouped this consequence into three sections so that we can try and get a handle on what Paul was saying here. So the first consequence of denying justification by faith alone is that Christ's personhood is defamed. Christ's personhood is defamed. Paul declares in verse 17, But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Now, if you've studied this verse before, you would know that multiple interpretations have been put forward. But we could probably boil them down to two main views. Both views fit within the overall teaching of Scripture, but the question is, which one fits best within the context of this passage? In the first view, it's suggested that Paul is making it clear that Christ is not responsible for the continued sin of those Jewish believers who have abandoned the law of Moses and sought justification through faith in Christ alone. He's dealing with the matter of ongoing sin, it's suggested. Now, 
This is a truth that is expressed throughout the scriptures. In fact, Paul speaks of the need for dealing with a believer's sin later in the letter to to the Galatians. However, it doesn't seem to fit the immediate context because the problem is not abuse, it is denial. It is not abuse of the doctrine of justification, it is the denial of the sufficiency of faith to be justified. So a better view of this verse then is to understand Paul helping Peter and the other Jewish believers see the logical conclusions of their actions. To be found sinners is to be thought of as sinners in the eyes of the unbelieving Jews, like the way that the Jews thought of the Gentiles as sinners, which we saw in verse 15. Paul is getting them to see that if the unbelieving Jews are right, If it is true that justification is not only by faith but also by works of the law, then Christ truly is an agent of sin. Why? Because justification by faith alone opens the door for fellowship between Jews and Gentiles solely based on faith in Christ, not based on observing the law. But if observing the law is still a necessary aspect of justification then Christ has deceived his people and they're thinking that faith alone is all that matters and he's led them into sin in their associating with Gentile believers who do not follow the law. If those Jewish Christians who hold to justification by faith alone are guilty of sin by associating with Gentile believers who, who do not adhere to the Jewish customs, then Christ is a servant of sin for encouraging this to happen. That is the logical conclusion that believers must reach if they entertain the teaching of the unbelieving Jews. But to even suggest that Christ could be a sinner is absolutely abhorrent to Paul. Is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. And We miss the full force of this in English. As one commentary says, Paul means, let that thought be flung from us as an abominable thing. But Christ's personhood is defamed if we deny justification by faith alone. So do we really want to go down that path? The second consequence is that Christ's people are damned. Christ's people are damned. Paul quickly counters with who he thinks is responsible for sin. And it certainly isn't the Lord. Verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The only way he could be guilty of sin by associating with Gentile believers is if he placed himself back under the law. Because under the law, yes, he would be guilty of failing to observe all that the law commanded. But those Jews who are justified in Christ, they are not sinning by having fellowship with Gentile believers. The reason why fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers is not sinful is given from verse 19. Paul says in effect, you want to know why those justified in Christ are not guilty for failing to observe the law? It says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. In Christ he has died to the law. Now just note very clearly, the only way to live to God 
is actually to die to the law. You can't follow the works of the law because that will mean staying dead to God and not rising to live to him. That's pretty clear. What needs a bit more thinking, however, is what Paul exactly means by the phrase, through the law I died to the law. Well, it can't be referring to two different laws, as he's not saying through the law of the gospel I died to the law of Moses. There's nothing in the text to make such a distinction. Getting closer to the mark is understanding Paul was saying something like, through the law I realised my inability to be justified before God by following it. So I knew I had to die to the law to be free from it. And we certainly see this aspect brought out within the letter. But an even better answer comes by seeing that in verse 20, Paul begins, I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus died in complete obedience to the law. This is what theologians refer to as Christ's passive obedience to the law. Now Christ did not die for his own sin, but for the sins of all who would believe in him. He took upon himself the punishment for sin that the law demanded. So by God's enabling grace, Paul says that he has been united to Christ through faith. He's been united with Christ in his death. That's what he means when he says, for through the law I died to the law. By his union with Christ, he has died the death that the law demanded for sin. Except that Paul's sins were punished in Christ for him. But then Paul says that the reason he died to the law was so that he might live to God. And this is also understood through his union with Christ. Because not only was Paul united with Christ in his death, but also in his resurrection. You see, Jesus also lived his life in complete obedience to the law. This is what theologians refer to as Christ's active obedience to the law. He fulfilled every single one of its requirements and he earned a righteous standing. That's why death could not hold him down. See, the wages of sin is death, but since Christ had no sin in himself, he was raised to life. And since Paul was united with Christ, he experiences the same blessing of resurrection. And this is what Paul emphasizes when he finishes verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And let's just note two more things. First, we must be clear that justification includes forgiveness of sin and a declaration of righteousness. Through a believer's union with Christ, their sins are forgiven through Christ's death and they are declared righteous by his life. The believer's sins are counted as Christ's and Christ's righteousness is counted as theirs. It is a legal fact, a legal declaration And this right here is the glorious truth of imputation. Is how believers, as Martin Luther declared, are at the same time just and sinners. The moment a sinner is brought to faith in Christ, they receive the declaration that they will hear from God at the time of final judgment. 
You are my, you, my son, are righteous in Christ. Welcome. You, my daughter, are righteous in Christ. Welcome. Our justification is not based on any work that we do, solely on Christ's. Secondly, justification is by faith alone, but as the reformers said, it is not a faith that is alone. See, the reformers were charged by the Catholic Church for advocating free grace that encouraged sinful behaviour. But Paul's words here show very clearly that while human works have no place in justification, a life lived to God is a direct and necessary result of justification. It is the fruit of justification. And if a person is not living to God, then there is no reason to believe that they have been united to Christ in his life. And if they've not been united in his life, then neither could they have been united in his death. But we need to be very careful we do not mix our categories. Because if we find ourselves relying on our own good works to be justified, then just like the Galatians, we will find ourselves being damned, having placed ourselves back under the law. And this brings us to the final part of the consequence. If we deny justification by faith alone, it means that Christ's passing was deluded. Christ's passing was deluded. Paul brings the discussion to a close, stating in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Justification is only by God's grace if we receive a righteous standing through Christ. But if we claim that sinners can earn righteousness through obedience to the law, then God's grace is annulled and Christ died for no reason whatsoever. For it to be grace, it has to be all of God. If sinners play any part in justification, then it is no longer by God's grace. And even if we claim, as the Catholic Church teaches, that justification is by grace through faith in Christ, and yet not by these things alone, that our works must flow out of this as a part of earning our justification before God, then we've denigrated God's grace and Christ's death was for no purpose. It was meaningless. It was deluded. And all these aspects show the severe consequence of denying justification by faith alone. This was the stern warning of the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter and to the wider church in the first century. And we dare not miss the severity of these matters. We dare not miss our own salvation. We dare not be led to speak ill of our tremendous Saviour. Now, unfortunately, these things have been missed throughout the history of the church. And it has led to moments where justification by faith alone has been denied. Earlier, I quoted from the Council of Trent in which the Catholic Church responded to the Reformers with a clear and resounding denial of justification by faith alone. Unfortunately, this denial, which is in complete contradiction to Scripture, has never been repudiated. In fact, it cannot be repudiated because that would deny the infallibility of the Pope. But in the 20th century, 
Further statements have been made to reinforce what was stated at Trent. One such comment is found from the council held in the early 1960s, known as Vatican II. And let me quote. From the most ancient times in the church, good works were also offered to God for the salvation of sinners, particularly the works which human weakness finds hard. Because the sufferings of the martyrs for the faith and for God's law were thought to be very valuable, penitents used to turn to the martyrs to be helped by their merits to obtain a more speedy reconciliation from the bishops. Indeed, the prayers and good works of holy people were regarded as of such great value that it could be asserted that the penitent was washed, cleansed and redeemed with the help of the entire Christian people. According to this view, Christ's death was not enough to render his people just. According to this view, justification is not solely by God's grace, but by the works of the law. Clearly then, it is at odds with scripture and it is not simply another gospel that is being taught, but it is no gospel at all. If we are to be salt and light in this world, it does no good to anyone if we ignore these differences. It is a matter of life and death that we seek to point people to the truth of the gospel and that we speak that truth in love. Paul's response to Peter, Paul's response to the Galatians shows the vital need for this. It is not unloving to speak the truth. But while it is necessary to feel the weight of these things, I want us to leave here today with one final thought. I want us to leave today with a sure confidence. You see, while we must recognise the severe consequences of denying justification by faith alone, in the final verses of Galatians 2, all those who rest upon Christ are given terrific assurance that the person and work of Jesus Christ are sufficient to make us right with God. Through union with him in his death and resurrection, the believer receives forgiveness of sin and is declared righteous. Christ's death and resurrection were for the specific purpose of saving all those who would believe in him. Christ had his people in mind when he went to the cross. Paul says, he loved me and gave himself for me. We can also know for certain that when we trust in Christ, that this has been brought about by the grace of God. And because it was by God's doing, he will keep us trusting in Christ until the day we see him face to face in glory. Peter's response at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 shows that he heard Paul's words of rebuke and he repented of his hypocrisy. Peter's words in his second epistle, affirming Paul's letters as being on par with the Old Testament scriptures, shows he knew that Paul was speaking the very words of God. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, on this 
We have rock-solid certainty. Now, in closing, let me finish with the words of the great reformer Martin Luther, whose words summed up the message we find in Galatians. And for those who need confidence in Christ, you will find great reassurance here. While for those who need rebuke, you will find the necessary reprimand in Luther's words. And I'll let your conscience tell you what you need today. Luther said this, Therefore God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life to only the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise fools. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud saint, no wise or just person can become God's material and God's purpose cannot be fulfilled in him. He remains in his own work and makes a fictitious, pretended, false and painted saint of himself that is a hypocrite. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself in your word and you have revealed yourself fully in the Lord Jesus Christ as he lived and died and rose to life once more. That in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he earned a righteous standing before you, righteousness that is now enabled to be imputed to those who trust solely in him. And that through union within in his death, our sins are forgiven. Father, we thank you that this is all of Christ because your word teaches us that our sinful fallenness ensures that our works fall short of your glory. And yet we have something to boast in, not in our own selves, but in you and your glory and your grace towards us in Christ Jesus. May you help us personally to know this truth. May you help us if there are people here today who are still relying on their own works to earn a right standing before you. May you break down those walls. May you break down those thoughts and help them to cry out for your mercy and for Christ Jesus. Help them to submit to the Lordship of Jesus fully. Father, for those of us who need encouragement in this, who are seeking to follow you and who struggle with uh, the, the temptations that we face to sin. May we be encouraged that uh, for those of us who are even asking the question as to uh, how we should be living our lives is a great sign that we have already been declared righteous before you. May you give us confidence that nothing can condemn us for those who are in Christ and nothing can separate us from your love in Christ. And Father, as a church, as a whole, uh, whether that's collectively or whether that's with us spread out uh, during the week, we pray that you would help us to proclaim the truth of the gospel wherever we go. Father, for those uh, in uh, the Catholic Church, uh, Father, we pray that you would, uh, you're by your spirit and by your word, Break open people's hearts to know the truth that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone and by your grace alone. Father, we know 
that you would have your people everywhere. And we pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth, to repent, to come before you, and to live to God in Christ Jesus. May this be to your glory, and may we humbly serve you as those who have been declared righteous by Christ alone. Amen.